Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for Volume 1, Issue 10, sponsored by Molecular Devices. I'm Evelyn Jabry, Executive Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by Managing Editor Sarah Teagan. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, everyone. We are pleased to announce that ACS Chemical Biology has been approved for indexing in Medline. Our content is being indexed, and you should expect to see the abstracts of our papers appear in PubMed by the end of the year. Availability in PubMed, ISI Web of Science, and Chemical Abstract databases, as well as crawling by Google, ensures that the journal's content and your research is readily accessible to biologists and chemists worldwide. Those of you who have published with ACS know about ACS Articles on Request. This policy currently provides, free of charge, to all contributing authors a unique URL directed to the ACS website. Authors may email this URL to their colleagues or post it on an external website. This link provides interested readers with up to 50 article downloads within the first year of publication. Thereafter, these same author-directed URL links provide unlimited access to final published articles from the ACS website. This open access policy provides a mechanism for authors to distribute their work more broadly. To complement this linking approach, ACS is pleased to offer a new publishing option, the ACS author choice for authors who wish or need to make their published research articles available without restriction immediately upon publication. To learn more about this choice, visit our website and read the editorial in Issue 8 of the journal. In this issue, we feature articles from the labs of Carolyn Bertozzi, Michael Marletta, Anna Mapp, and David Golan. We'll be speaking with Anna Mapp later in the podcast, but first we want to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. For our Ask the Expert feature, Rebecca Heald from the University of California at Berkeley has joined us to answer your questions about mitosis and spindle assembly. I recently spoke with Rebecca about one of the questions our readers posed. Rebecca, your lab studies mitotic spindle assembly in vitro. What are the types of techniques you can use to probe these questions? The major system that we use is a cell-free system based on Xenopus lavis egg extracts. This is a, an African clawed frog that lays these beautiful one millimeter diameter eggs. And we collect these eggs and we use them to make a cytoplasmic soup um, that we can use for our spindle assembly experiments in vitro. Uh, and it works well, really well, because the eggs, when they're laid by the frog, are all in the same phase of the cell cycle. They're in metaphase of meiosis II. So when we collect these eggs and make the extract, the extract is also in this metaphase of meiosis. Um, so what we can do is we can add a source of chromosomes to those egg extracts, and within that cytoplasm in vitro, a spindle will form. And we can, we can wash this by adding a little bit of fluorochrome-labeled tubulin to the reaction, and that will incorporate into the spindle so we can see them, and they're very pretty. And we can manipulate the cell cycle state of the extract by adding calcium. We'll send it into interphase, and the, the chromosomes will duplicate. And we can add fresh extract to send it back into metaphase. And then uh, with another dose of calcium, we can induce anaphase in vitro. So we can study all these stages of mitosis in this open, sort of biochemically accessible system. Um, so that's really sort of the defining feature of my lab's work. Um, the system has been around for a long time, but we found it to be really our favorite approach to study spindle assembly and function. That's really cool. You can really tune the system very precisely using various extracts and other chemicals. 
the great thing is that you know when when you work with cells if you want to study mitosis only in your cell population maybe 10% of them are in mitosis um, and it's really hard to introduce things into the cell um, and it takes time for things like RNAi to work or other things to work or you have to microinject the cells to be really painful um, but we have this in vitro system where we can just add chemicals or add whatever we want and then really use nice high-resolution microscopy to look at what's going on um, in that cytoplasm when we've added a chemical compound or a fluorescently tagged protein. Not only can we add things, but we can take out things from the extract. So we can um, mix the extract with beads that are coated with an antibody um, of whatever protein we want to deplete and then incubate those antibody-coated beads in the extract and then remove them and then thereby removing that protein. So we can eliminate just one factor in the cytoplasmic extract that contains thousands and thousands of proteins um, and then see what the effect is. It's sort of like genetics in vitro, that you can add things, you can take them away, you can do a depletion and then you can see whether you can rescue the phenotype by adding back um, a pure protein, for example. Thanks for taking the time to answer our readers' questions, Rebecca. You're very welcome. Rebecca will participate in a live Ask the Expert session at the American Society for Cell Biology meeting in San Diego next month. You can join us at the ACS Publications booth, number 908, at 2 p.m. on Monday, December 11th. I encourage all of our readers to submit their questions about mitosis at www.acschemicalbiology.org. We continue to define chem-bioglossary terms on the air. This month's keyword is lectin, which was a keyword in a review by Dickerson and Janda. Lectins are receptor proteins that specifically bind to carbohydrates. They are found in both plants and animals and have diverse roles in each. They play a large role in the normal function of the immune system. ACS Chemical Biology features four exciting research papers. To learn more about the junior authors of these papers, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This new section of the journal helps us reach out to people who work in the labs and perform the majority of the experiments. We also put a face with a name. This month, we meet five young scientists, Chris Cairo, Doug Mitchell, Jennifer Lum, Jeremy Baskin, and Nick Agard. Read our new section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. In a paper by Jennifer Lum and Anna Mapp, the authors design and evaluate a new class of artificial transcriptional activators. Artificial transcriptional activators are a useful class of compounds for understanding the transcription process and manipulating it. Anna, what exactly are these artificial transcriptional activators? Well, in a very general sense, artificial transcriptional activators are molecules that target specific genes or sets of genes and turn on their transcription, so turn on that first key step of gene expression. And generally speaking, they have two key functional components. One is a domain or module that allows them to interact with DNA in a very specific manner, so that way they can find the specific gene they regulate. And then the other key component of an artificial transcriptional activator is a domain that interacts with the proteins in the transcriptional machinery, sort of like a molecular Velcro that brings the transcriptional machinery down to a specific gene and enables the gene to be turned on. Are they always proteins? 
they aren't always proteins. Most of the artificial transcriptional activators uh, described so far in the literature have been proteins, mostly because that's that's sort of where most of our understanding lies. But there are a few examples of small molecules now. So how did you develop the new activator that you report in your paper? Well, we were really interested to see when we looked in the literature that of all of the artificial transcriptional activators that had been described, there were very few that functioned as well as natural transcriptional activators once you got into cells. And we didn't really understand why that uh, was the case because these protein-based artificial activators looked very similar to natural activators in terms of their sequence content and also the kinds of proteins that they interacted with in the transcriptional machinery. And what we found is that when we studied one of the exceptions to this rule, so an artificial activator that did actually work very well in cells, we found that it had an additional binding interaction outside of the transcriptional machinery that really contributed to its ability to function well in cells. So we then, in this paper, what we did was add that second binding interaction to a class of artificial transcriptional activators that worked terribly in cells. <laughs> they had virtually no activity, which was uh, initially disappointing, but then we found when we added this extra binding interaction to the artificial activators, their activity shot up, in some cases, almost 600-fold relative to where they had been to start with. So where do you think these types of molecules will be most useful? Well, there are a lot of uh, exciting and emerging applications for artificial transcriptional activators. From a, a sort of biotechnology, synthetic biology standpoint, um, if you'd like to increase the production of a particular protein in cells or even in an organism, then having artificial activators that you can use to predictably upregulate transcription of a particular gene encoding that protein is pretty powerful. And up until now, what's mostly been used has been sort of modified natural activators, which has some limitations since those natural activators have other jobs inside the cell. So artificial activators will be pretty useful in that context. Longer term, there's a lot of interest in the chemical community and in the more biological community at using artificial activators to target a range of human diseases because what's been found is that uh, virtually all human diseases have misregulated transcription associated with them, either as a cause of the disease or as an effect of the disease. So there's a lot of emerging excitement at using these kinds of molecules in the longer term to try to correct um, problems in, in transcriptional regulation. Well, that's great. We'll look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Sure. A paper by Doug Mitchell and Michael Marletta suggests that nitric oxide, or NO, famous for its role in treatment of male sexual dysfunction, may have a new role in preventing the death of cells after heart attacks and strokes. The authors synthesize and evaluate a small peptide transnitrosinating agent that can be used to probe the role of S-nitrosination of the pro-apoptotic protein caspase 3. S-nitrosation is a post-translational modification in which a cysteine thiol is converted to a nitrosothiol by the oxidative addition of NO. The structure of the peptide, named PEP-SNO, is based on the recognition sequence of caspase 3 and incorporates a nitrosated thiol. The authors determine that when PEP-SNO is exposed to caspase 3, 
the nitric oxide group is specifically transferred to the caspase 3 active site cysteine, deactivating the enzyme. Interestingly, treatment of Jerkat cells with PEP-SNO inhibited etoposide-stimulated apoptosis, more selectively than other nitrosating agents. The study provides a starting point for the development of other caspase-selective transnitrosating agents. In a paper by Jeremy Baskin, Nick Agard, and Carolyn Bertozzi, the authors compare the utility of three different reaction mechanisms for the selective incorporation of an azide into a target biomolecule. The Staudinger ligation, the copper wine catalyzed azide alkyl cycloaddition, also called click chemistry, and the strain promoted 3 plus 2 cycloaddition. The authors compare the reactions in the labeling of purified proteins, protein mixtures, and live cell surfaces. A main thrust of the paper is to understand which reaction works most effectively in a particular environment. In experiments with purified proteins and protein mixtures, click chemistry was best, affording time and concentration dependent reactions with the highest sensitivity. In contrast, the different reaction environments of live cells called for different reaction conditions because the reagents used in click chemistry proved toxic. Both the Staudinger ligation and the strain-promoted cycloaddition were effective reactions for labeling the cell surface. Notably, the structure of the azide predictably affected the reaction efficiency, providing clues for choosing the most suitable reaction in a given situation. In a paper by Chris Cairo and David Golan, the authors study the molecular mechanism by which CD2, a protein found on the surface of T cells, interacts with CD58, the CD2 receptor found on the surface of antigen-presenting cells. This interaction helps the T cell determine when an immune reaction is needed. The authors observed that T cell activation results in an increased density and rate of accumulation of CD58 at the contact area, an increase in the cell surface expression of CD2, a reduction of the mobilities of both CD2 and CD58, and an increase in the affinity of CD2 for CD58. The authors put forth a model by which the CD2-CD58 interaction is regulated. This model incorporates the effects of coordinated changes in cell activation and receptor conformation, mobility, expression level, and surface density. This paper offers critical new insights into the immune system responses involved in AIDS, HIV, and medication-related immune suppression that affect an increasing number of people. This podcast is sponsored by Molecular Devices Corporation, providing devices for cell imaging, lipids handling, and electrophysiology. On the web at www.moleculardevices.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org.